Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We uh, got our first post-spot shotter comments on the record from C- uh Chicago Police Superintendent Larry Snelling yesterday. Yeah. Uh, Snelling uh, took to the podium. The occasion for the press avail was to talk about charges and the uh, case of a killing on the West Side. But uh, he was asked about ShotSpotter. And uh, he gave, I mean, he restated his view, the sort of police view on ShotSpotter, that it's a helpful tool and we'd like it. Here's what I'll tell you. We have it now. We're going to use it to the best of our ability now. And we've done so uh, throughout the time that we've had it. What I will tell you is this. Whatever happens, um, the Chicago Police Department is going to continue to work to keep the city safe. Uh, Obviously, I'm for technology that's going to help us get to a location quicker and help us save lives. I've said that before, and I'll say it a million times over. I don't back away from that that statement that I made. Um, However, there are some things that are outside the control uh, of the Chicago Police Department when it comes to those things. But as I told you before... There are great men and women in this department who work really hard, and they're going to continue to do the same. Yeah, well, we expect that. So ShotSpotter, you'll recall, was ending, then it was going to be extended to the DNC through the DNC. Then the uh, ShotSpotter folks said, no, we're not so interested. And then they cut an 11th-hour deal to pay as much to extend it for the next six months through the DNC as they did all of last year. I'm talking about they being the city. So that's where it stands at present. Right. But it, it goes away after the DNC at present. Well, September 22nd, but then that's in yeah. limbo too. But I mean, this was such, I'm so glad that he finally came out and spoke because I don't know what the hell Brandon Johnson's doing to the city. When you have your superintendent that you hired, that you approved of, when he's telling you that this works, and then you still get rid of it because you're all about defunding police? I mean, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He cannot have it both ways. Well, here, here's okay, so here's the thing. What? Uh, first of all, even before you get to the decision, do you include your superintendent in the conversation? Heck yes. Was, 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 was Snelling uh, asked about this or even given the courtesy of a notification that it was, this was going to happen? Here's what he said. The mayor and I have had a conversation about this. There was communication. The communication could have been better on both parts. Since then, we have spoken. We are very clear about communication right now. I'm feeling very positive right now about how we're going to communicate moving forward. So... What I don't want to do is is dabble in distractions. I don't want to get into that. I want to make sure 
that the relationship between myself, the mayor, is a working relationship that's going to help us go out and keep the public safe. I believe that that's where we are right now. I believe after having a clear conversation with the mayor that we're on the same page and we're moving forward. Oh, good. Same page moving forward. We communicated about communication and we're pretty optimistic about the communicating we're going to do about communication in the future. That's wonderful. Uh, so he wasn't asked is the point. He no. wasn't informed. This happened after the fact. And now they had a conversation about it. And so everything's hunky dory because, of course, what's the police superintendent to do well, otherwise? The superintendent, so, he was out of the country when the mayor announced uh, this. And uh, he didn't, uh, that, that's that's irrelevant. Well, he wasn't told about the decision before it became public. That's what's That's relevant. the problem, yes. Um, so here's the thing about this whole dynamic. It just strikes me. They always, the left always hide be, hides behind the experts. We're bringing top people in. Top men and women. Uh, this is a public health professional. This is a uh, uh, sex educator. You know, we talked about this yesterday with Taylor Lorenz. <laughs> This is a, I'm not a licensed sex educator. I have I can not have an opinion on whether we should push porn onto grade schoolers. I'm not licensed to make that decision. Always deferring to experts, the experts, the science and the data people, the experts in their field, the ones with the credentials. Always, always, always defer, except for police. Except for police with police. I know better. And here and and remember, I'm not the defer to credentials because they have credentials, defer to the experts because you take expert input and then you make a decision because you have other variables to consider as an elected official that somebody who is uh, narrow cast in a particular professional space does not. So I'm not saying that you just defer, but this is what they do on every other topic except Law enforcement. Isn't that interesting? Don't you find that interesting? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. They cover their asses with experts, mm-hmm. except when it comes to police. They don't even ask Chicago's top cop. I mean, the thing is, with ShotSpotter, people you know keep arguing, well, you, there's 911. Well, 911 is not reliable. I mean, we both know somebody who was carjacked, and they waited an hour and 42 minutes for cops to arrive. ShotSpotter, they go, they respond. Yes, sometimes it's a car backfiring. Sometimes it might be a firework. But most of the time, it's shots fired. And they save lives because they stop people from bleeding out. Because the ambulance comes. And they can get the suspects sometimes, too. ShotSpotter is just a manifestation. It's just an example of the dynamic. Obsessed about ShotSpotter. ShotSpotter is not a panacea. It's another tool for police. Right. Well, don't take and, it away. Yeah, but but the, if ShotSpotter didn't go away, nothing about this dynamic changes. Nothing. Maybe uh, Stacey Davis Gates will take this up when she addresses the City Club uh, next week. Super Tuesday, actually. Stacey Davis Gates, CTU president, is going to address the uh, the City Club. So if you if you're interested in some um, oh, go family style lunch dining, you get your uh, mastacholi. And uh, your chicken parm while you listen to Stacey Davis Gates talk about the city, how things are going at CTU. Maybe uh, during the question and answer portion of those programs, if they still Is offer she, questions and answers. She probably won't. Uh, that, um, yeah, you can ask more globally about the city because she has opinions about things that are outside of K-12 through education. Not that 
She shouldn't focus her attention there, given the quality of K through twelve. No, education. give me some questions. I'll go on. I'll sit in the back with the press and watch you rich people eat <laughs> your pasticcioli and plod her like she's some goddess of some sort. I mean, it's they're, so sick. They're not rich people. They're, they're, well, they're the they're the they're the professional political managerial class. That's who shows up to those lunches. Yeah, it is. It is I'm sure not high minded. There. there are some rent seekers, yeah. but it's mostly politicians and their minions it's like it's like the, the warlords show up with their entourages that's what the city club has yeah. become because that i mean ever since tom roser passed and tom donovan has stepped aside you know that's another sort of phony civic organization that's supposed to promote like deep policy thinking and discussion and debate well that's over too there's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. 86% of Americans say illegal immigration is a critical threat to the United States, according to a recent Gallup polling. A majority of Americans want a border wall first immigration policy so no uh, you know uh, global deal that uh, those who are not interested in border security are always pitching so that they can continue to keep the borders open and their future constituents flowing in so they think Uh. Mike Johnson the House Speaker was at the White House for another Meeting on the topic with Mr. 10 percent, the big guy, President Biden. And just basically everybody's reiterating their positions against the backdrop of these phony baloney deadlines where the government will, quote unquote, shut down. Right. The temporary furlough of a quarter of non-essential government employees. Yeah. Real scary. But anyway, that's the politics of it. And Speaker Johnson emerged from that meeting with Biden and had this to say. But again, the first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. I I believe the president can take executive authority right now today to change that. And I told him that again today in person, as as I've said to him many times, 
publicly and privately over the last several weeks. It's time for action. It is a catastrophe, and it must stop. And we will get the government funded, and we'll keep working on that. So we'll have more for you. Uh-huh. And uh, so he had to sit down with President Biden. He restated his position directly, so he says, and there's no reason not to believe it. And then this is the exchange in the alternate universe in which White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre and the D.C. press corps live. And I appreciate the question. I don't even think he knows what he wants. No, sir. And I say that very seriously. They first asked for, when we put forward the national security supplemental, it had border security in it. And we were told by the speaker and others, we need to deal with the border security challenges first. You had a bipartisan group of senators coming, uh, coming out of the Senate, working for four months with with the White House to put forward a bipartisan piece of legislation that dealt with a important, important, uh, important challenge that we see at the border and immigration. And then so we did that. We moved that forward. We presented it. And it, we were told, no, 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 no. We want, we, we don't want the border security. We want just the national security supplemental without border security. Then the Senate goes back and they pass the national security supplemental without border security, 7029. We did that, or they did that, and the speaker refuses to put that to the floor. So what is it that he really wants here? If you look at the border security deal, that proposal, it has components of that, has what the speaker has been talking about for years. So the question is really for him. Like, three one two. What does he want? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey.pro answer line. You can also reach us on our text line. It is fired up and ready to go. 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Right. What does he want? It's it's uh, it's unknowable. Um, and of course, there's no follow-up from the D.C. press corps to say, what does Speaker Johnson want? Um, well, the House Republicans passed H.R. 2. It sort of contains what they want. It's right there in legislative form. They've been promoting it. And while the Senate, uh, Senate Republicans were working on a surrender on border security with Senate Democrats, Speaker Johnson and House Republicans were saying just just uh, stick to H.R. 2. So what is unclear about H.R. 2? It, it's very specific in point of fact. It uh, requires the use of E-Verify for employers under penalty of prison, for example. That's a specific thing. That's right, concrete. That's uh, it... Um, uh, makes it more difficult for migrants to claim asylum. It makes that process more onerous for those stay, that stay, who stay long enough for the claim to be processed. For example, the bill denies people the ability to claim asylum unless CBP, the CBP officer who processes them believes their ultimate case would be more likely than not to be accepted. Um, for example, so ends the, we talked about remain in Mexico. Uh, build a wall. Require the federal government to wall off at least 900 miles of the U.S.'s roughly 2,000-mile border with Mexico, resuming all Trump airplanes that were interrupted by Trump's defeat in 2020. Ends uh, some of the protections for minors created under the Flores Settlement, a 93 case that has since informed immigration law. Require DHS to establish reestablish family detention and once allow again allow families with children to be detained uh, pending adjudication of any claims okay so i mean regardless of what you think of those specifics in hr2 don't tell me that you don't know 
what Speaker Johnson wants because he's presented in a legislative form and passed it out of the House in legislative form. But this is the kabuki theater that you have going on with the Biden White House and their comm shop, the D.C. press corps, to pretend that there's all sorts of confusion and 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 and, and obstinance on behalf of Republicans. And they're trying to come to a reasonable compromise because you have to compromise, move the flag forward in a democracy and blah, blah, blah. And we're trying to be we're trying to engage and meet them halfway and find common ground and all the other bromides. And you just have the House Republicans dug in because they're all Trump cultists. That's essentially what the Biden administration is trying to get away with. But they're not going to get away with it. No. And a point of contention that I have about yesterday's press hearing. Why didn't anybody say, do you have anything to say to Lincoln Riley's family or friends? Do you, is this uh, this Ibarra? Is he going to be deported? I mean, he's not going to face the death penalty. But nobody asked that. Instead, they, a spokesperson released a statement. I don't even know if it was KGP, one of her um, little flacks. We'd like to extend our deepest condolences to the family and loved ones of Lakin Hope Riley. People should be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. And if they're found to be guilty, this, given this is an active case, we would have to refer you to state law enforcement and ICE. Oh, really? Um, I'm going to call ICE. It's an, an- Okay. The, the the opportunity to deport him is over. I know. He's going to spend the rest of his life in a cage here, which is appropriate. Well, I'm all for the death. I'm a life for a life. Whatever. He's not He's not being deported. No, he's not. He's getting, not. That's like getting a free pass. No, I, but I'm saying he should have been deported before all this happened. Well, of course. He should have never when been let in. molested that child. He shouldn't have been let in. And his ex-wife, I mean, she, she told the New York Post, like, yeah, we, in September we came here for a better life. We snuck in in September of 2022, and then... After the New York incident, they parted ways and he moved to Georgia to do what? To do, did you see the latest details of what he did to her? It's so disturbing. He disfigured her skull. So according to police, he physically prevented her. So she was out jogging and he confronted her. He physically stopped her from calling 911. Then he dragged her from that field to a secluded area where he disfigured her skull because he was bashing her in. And we don't know what, what he used or if he just was hitting her head on the ground, but and it would lasted from anywhere between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. So think of how much time she suffered for a preventable crime. And I, I just would be, I just feel like nobody cares about this. Mainstream media doesn't care about it. This is, this is their reaction. This is a 30-second montage of yesterday. Republicans obviously seizing on this horrific tragedy at the University of Georgia. They're seizing on this as an example of Biden's failure to protect the American people and to secure the border. Riley's death igniting a political firestorm. State House Speaker John Burns indicating that the Georgia House this week will take steps on illegal immigration. As if the initial facts were not horrifying enough or the sense of loss not deep enough by now. And all of it has now been compounded by the revelation the suspect was in this country unlawfully and how quickly that fact became politicized. It's it's a fact because it could have been prevented. This isn't a graphic example of unsecure borders. And this isn't she's like the fifth or I don't even know what the the number is of women that have been killed. And other people have been killed, too, with drunk drivers and hit and runs. So don't tell me this is going to be politicized. It should be politicized. Now's the time that something actually might change because of this. I don't think so. I don't think that's the posture of the Democrat Socialist Party. In fact, it's pretty clear that it's not. And uh, this is not our first go around. This is the same thing we do with the murder de jure of the 
the child caught in the crossfire in Chicago. Mm. This is where we draw the line. No, it isn't. Because it happens again and again and freaking again. Uh, Katie Porter. Oh, my God. What a monster. Is a Democrat rep from California. She's also running for U.S. Senate there, along with other luminaries like Adam Schiff. Uh, This is what she had to say about the murder of Lake and Riley. Well, I think when a horrible tragedy like like this happens, I think whenever we're dealing um, with violent crime, there is a sense of outrage, of sadness and of loss. But I think the important thing to focus on is any one instance shouldn't shape our overall immigration policy, which has so many different facets, including economic choices about what workers to allow in and how to create prosperity in America. So the situation is tragic and it's a loss and it's important to acknowledge that, but also to recognize all the other how all the other parts of immigration policy fit together. Okay, so she's saying that we shouldn't make too much out of this one innocent girl's murder. Okay, yeah. Yeah, outlier murders make bad public policy, is what she's saying. Hmm. Hmm. Shouldn't uh, shouldn't make, you know, shouldn't lose uh, focus on all of the variables when we're thinking about immigration policy comprehensively. Well, um, here's a concept. I'm not thinking about immigration comprehensively. I'm thinking about immigration very narrowly in the sense that if you uh, allow violent criminals into this country and to stay in this country after they've had multiple interfaces with law enforcement, then I don't want to talk about any of your other variables. Well, I wanted to ask her what, what positive has come from this immigration surge. What, tell me something positive. There's nothing. It's a, a blank show. Yeah. I, I think you have to really listen to someone like Katie Porter. Mm-hmm. I think you have to really listen to that statement. And what it communicates about their view of you, the rabble out there in America. The people who play by the rules, the back row Americans, whatever phraseology you'd like i mean it is blithe indifference to your lives and the lives of people you care about unless they're here illegally it couldn't be more antiseptic her response couldn't have been more antiseptic she's sick her opponent should use that against her that comment she made let's you know, hey, you know, when we're when we're um, as as is always the case, when we're constructing heaven on earth, there's going to be a few mix-ups. Oh, right. There's going to be there a few slips. Uh, some people are going to get hurt, but you can't focus on the one-offs, the one-off nursing student who gets murdered. You have to look at the big picture of all the good that we're doing. That's essentially her position, and that's essentially the position of her party. Text message, Dan and Amy, I would throw boiling potatoes in Katie Porter's general direction. Carl in Remington, Indiana. Amy, I'd like to add to you, you know, the loss of life is bad enough. In the next 10 years, the illegal population is going to, with all their good uh, collection abilities, going to add another $5 to the debt for your kids to pay with interest. 
and that's going to be compounded, actually, because they just keep coming. I'm thinking upwards of $7 trillion added to the debt. Uh, thanks for the call, Carl. Um, you know, again, uh, I don't want to place too much importance on this murder of a two-year-old in Prince George's County, Maryland, either, because we have to think about all the other variables that make for an integrated immigration policy that Katie Porter would support. Fifth suspect arrested in connection with the murder of a two-year-old Jeremy Caceres. Uh, 25-year-old Salvadoran illegal. Uh-huh. On November 7th of 2022, DOJ, in uh, an immigration judge for, from DOJ in Newark, ordered the removal of this guy. Just November of 2022, Montgomery County Police Department arrested him in March of 2023, charged him with theft. While those charges remain pending, ICE lodged an immigration detainer with the Montgomery County Detention Center. However, the agency said the Montgomery County, Maryland Detention Center refused to honor the detainer because they're a sanctuary community in Maryland, of course. So he was released in March uh, of 2023. He was arrested on September 26th of 2023, charged with theft again, in an attempt to obstruct and hindering. ICE lodged an immigration detainer with the Montgomery County Detention Center in September of 2023. What do you think happened? So then he was released in October of 2023, and then he, along with a bunch of other animals, uh, were in, it, committed a shooting in which a two-year-old was murdered. Oh, God. But, but again, I don't want you to focus on that uh, dead two-year-old or the dead nursing students. Focus on the wonderful, welcoming, inclusive, open borders immigration policy that's going to make America a more compassionate place because Katie Porter says so. Not letting in their finest people. But please avert your eyes from the body count. We got to get a body count. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I am beside myself. Uh, Bill in Monticello, Indiana. Good morning, guys. When it was COVID, we had to shut the country down to save one life. But when it comes to the border, we can't shut the border down to save one life. God, that is great. Good for you. Thanks, Bill. Remember that if it saves one life. Okay. Carl, Marionette Park. Morning, Dan. Thank you for taking my call. Good morning. Uh, Amy, I'm sorry. Yeah, my blood is boiling again. You know, this lake and rally was somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, somebody's sibling. And uh, when George Floyd uh, lost his life, he was murdered. That was Paul's eyes, and that was just fine and dandy, you know. And uh, I, you know, I'm just really upset about this. And uh, something does need to be done about these borders. And that's all I wanted to say. Thanks, Dan and Amy. Thanks, yeah, Carl. she was a nearby student on the dean's list at Augusta University, which is right next to University of Georgia. She was well, she, she she was signing up for a life of service to others as a nurse, and that Tom, happened to her. Tom and Oswego. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I, I know I've talked to you two before about my son-in-law, who I'm trying to get here from Mexico, a college-educated, self-employed person, the stand-up guy, the person you'd want in this country. So when I hear these stories and I listen to Speaker Johnson talking with President Biden, blah, 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 it's all baloney. 
they could stop this tomorrow. I think what really frosts me is, as I follow this and listen to these people speak, Dan, it boils down to one thing. They don't care what happens as long as they have theirs. Mm-hmm. I've listened to people speak, um, friends of ours. They're in a different – you can't even talk to some of these people anymore. I don't even understand. I, I'm not a college-educated guy. I, I feel I have a lot of common sense, though, and I can't even understand where they're coming from. And if you try to talk with them, it, it, not just my friends but other individuals, if you try to speak with them, they can't even defend their position. They just end up maybe calling you a name or saying, well, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Our right. And, so that, and, that, and, and, that's, and that's where you have to double down. That's right. Yeah. You're not going to talk to me about it because there's nothing going on between – thanks for the call, Tom. You're not, you're, there's nothing going on between your ears. You're just repeating political cants you heard from somewhere because you don't like Trump or for whatever idiotic reason, you've lost the ability to critically think. So you can't have an adult conversation – about the murder and the mayhem that we're discussing at present. You can't do that. You can't accomplish that. And you should be embarrassed because you're not an adult. And, you, and you're demonstrating a complete indifference to the future of your neighborhood, of your community, of this country, the neighborhoods and the communities and this country in which your children are going to live because you're just too lazy, you're too afraid you're too uh, dopamine addicted on social media, looking for attaboys. How pathetic are you? About time for those difficult conversations in those circles of influence that we all enjoy. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Boy, this, uh, this funny Willis situation in Fulton County, Georgia, you can put a tent over this circus. Wait, Dan, I don't know. I've got amnesia. What are you talking about? <clears throat> yeah, we heard from uh, Nathan Wade, her paramours, former divorce attorney, yesterday on the stand. But before we even get to that. Right. Well, I'm just saying I can't remember the story. Help me out. These are um, 
It's just really interesting. I mean, the, the idea that this is uh, going to trial anytime soon. Well, you can forget that. That's the good news for Trump. And the other good news is the spectacle that Fonnie Willis has made of this whole matter has completely undermined the seriousness with which this case should be taken for, I think, most people. Not all, not the, you know, the rabid frothing at the mouth Trump haters, but I mean, for most reasonable people that say just just as a matter of justice under the law, this is embarrassing at minimum. This report from Breitbart. The Biden administration planted a Democrat operative inside a Fulton County office to target former President Trump, according to sources uh, that spoke exclusively to Breitbart News. Now, again, this is, you know, anonymous sources, the, the nature of these investigative stories, but it is interesting. The figure they point to and the connection to Biden orchestrating it is, I wouldn't say it's tenuous, but it's certainly not concrete. There were, were these meetings. Why is Fonnie Willis, why is Nathan Wade, and we brought this up weeks and weeks ago, um, why are there records of them having these meetings in D.C. For, for a Fulton County state's attorney and and her paramour slash staffer slash bender, however she characterizes him? And we'll get to more of that in a second. Jeff DeSantis is the um, person of interest in this story. He's the Fulton County deputy district attorney sort of a political operative based on the reporting here. He's also the former executive director of the Democratic Party of Georgia. So I don't know if that's a connection to D.C. or that's just local orchestration or perhaps a combination of the two. He's worked for candidates in 30 states running for a variety of offices, according to the reporting, which, you know, sounds right. Former E.D. of a state party. Sources uh, that spoke with Breitbart, credit DeSantis, no relation, by the way, spelled differently, colluding with the White House to target Trump. DeSantis did this, one source told Breitbart News. He's the one, he is the one pulling all the strings. He's the one that walked, that walled her, meaning Willis, off. He was in every important meeting. He's the brainchild behind this. That is the connection to the White House. So the argument is that they set about targeting Trump, uh, you know, right from the Raffensperger call forward. This was an opportunity that they saw, and this was a way to, uh, I, you know, I don't know exactly what the thinking is, but we've certainly heard the theories about it, uh, do the combination of trying to elevate Trump only to make him unelectable in a general election, right? Because that's who they wanted to face, and so you indict him to rally the base, and then you make him box office poison by having to wear the convicted felon moniker in the general election. And you're betting that the American people won't go for that. But I mean, it just, you would say this is, you know, sort of Ides of March conspiracy theorizing. I mean, if we didn't have so many other fifth column actions from inside the federal government, inside state governments that have been, confirmed that are of this variety, right? 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. The judge presiding over this uh, grotesque uh, proceeding involving Fawny Harris and this uh, circle of nitwits around her is really something. He, he must He must be just... Uh, embarrassed to be a part of it as well, I presume, or embarrassed to have to uh, dem- to, to to see the, for the world to have to see what uh, the criminal justice system in Fulton County, Georgia, actually looks like. Much as we would be if oh. Kim Fox was ever under such scrutiny. Uh, Fawny Willis. Uh, I mean, there's there's no there's no sort of reaction from the Fawny Willis camp to this story. But it nonetheless generates more questions about it. Not going to make its way into this proceeding, but it doesn't need to because Fawny Willis can't figure out when she was hanging around with Nathan Wade and when she wasn't. It's 22. No, it's 21. And and then we learn, oh, wait a second. Uh, In 2020, he was uh, the lead on her transition team into the Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office. Yeah. And cell phone records show that they were together. Her one friend, what was it, Robin? She said, no, they've been together since 2019, hugging so, and kissing. So that's pretty strong evidence that so they've the perjured themselves and they've misrepresented the relationship to the court. She's going to get bounced. The, I assume the office will get bounced, and this thing is going to continue to you know, spin out into space. But something else, too, uh, that's come out what? about Fawny and the way she administered her office. I mean, if you didn't pick up on it during her deposition or during her testimony on the stand. She's a bit of an identitarian, in case you didn't, in case that wasn't coming through, and been including, too, in her sort of speechifying to the public from the pulpit. Uh, Fanny Willis uh, subjected her employees to mandatory race training, forcing the entire office to rate black and white skin colors as either good or bad. And in this instance, uh, Breitbart has the receipts, as they say, as the kids like to say. They've got the slides. (gasps) If you didn't participate in the quiz, you got fired, a source told Breitbart News. So somebody in Fannie Willis's office is clearly talking to Breitbart that and this seems to substantiate it. And it goes to perhaps the credibility of the Jeff DeSantis story as well. The. uh, Training was a directive straight from Willis, they said, who injected racism into the office from the second she got hired. Dubbed an implicit bias test, a Harvard website generated the die slides. Uh, Willis had some guy be live for roughly eight hours. He was a former member of Obama's White House. The training suggests the United States was founded on the sins of white men and the slaughter of Native Americans. Uh, she pulled it off uh, as diversity training, but it was more of an attack on the race relations thing. And here's um, one of the slides. Can you imagine this? And th- these are these are these are prosecutors. These are people with police power over other people in this country. Yeah, they've power to persuade a judge to throw people in jail. Part one of seven: put a left finger over the left green area for items that belong in the category white people and a right finger over the right green area for items that belong into the category black people. 
and you so you go through uh, categorizing uh, people as white or black, and then there's a slide that says bad or white people, good or black people. So, in in other words, bad is synonymous with white people, and good is synonymous with black people. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, I mean, just to to give you a little bit more color on this, pun intended, um, this is the kind of, can you imagine uh, having to answer a question like this in the context of your employment? And mandatory race training. Which, well, well, the mandatory race training is hardly unusual. but this is part of that. Specific questions like this. Which statement best describes you? I strongly prefer white people to black people. Mm. I moderately prefer white people to black people. I slightly prefer black people, uh, white people to black people. Uh, I slightly prefer black people to white people. I moderately prefer black to white. I strongly prefer black to white. Yeah, you know, uh, wh- what did you do on that question? Wh- where did you come down? Did you slightly or moderately prefer honkies to black people or black people to honkies? You know, it's great water cooler talk. Yeah, what'd you put down? Um, mm-hmm. And she pulled it off as diversity training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how warm or cold do you feel towards black people? Oh uh, ten is extremely warm. White is very cold. One is very cold, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more. There's uh, also a race training video featured in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office that ranked the most racist judges. Racist judges. The video, which played during the race training session, mentioned Florida and used statistics not based on Fulton County data. It also spoke to, about judges being partisans, although judges in Georgia run unaffiliated. Um, so the whole point is just to, again, uh, most racist, the whole race, you know, forcing everything through the race prism. And so we're not going to use judges in Georgia because that would be potentially prejudicial. But in a in a way that could materially hurt the office, but we'll so we'll just use Florida as a proxy for Georgia for what we're trying to convey. Mm-hmm. Glenn in Orlando, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yes, uh, good morning. So, if there's a this amount of misconduct going on, isn't it the responsibility of the governor to investigate this through his attorney general? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, thanks for the call, Glenn. You have uh, Jim Jordan, who mentioned that they had, and maybe it's the same whistleblower that Breitbart is uh, using as their source, because Jim Jordan at CPAC mentioned they have a whistleblower in Fannie Willis's office, and um, Good. and you've got uh, that uh, Jordan's committee looking at the federal angle here, which is grant money that the Fulton County District Attorney's Office gets from the federal government. Well, there are certain stipulations to that grant money in terms of how it may be spent and so on and so forth. So he's taking it from the area where they have an interest, federal dollars sent to a local state's attorney's office and how that money was spent consistent with the restrictions on it. Well, yeah, I would say that the Attorney General of the state of Georgia not to mention the the ARDC needs to take a look at you know everything that we're learning about Fonnie Willis 
But it is it is remarkable, too. I mean, you know, this was going to be her star turn, mm-hmm. just like Alvin Bragg. And I'll tell you what, you know, um, it, this is an instance where basically because of the lawyers for uh, Trump and, and his associates, like this Mike Roman guy, this Ashley Merchant was the really the, the attorney, I think, that gets credit for starting to unravel this sort of Fannie Willis life. Um, but uh, you want to have your big star turn, well, be very careful. Be very careful because if you've been playing fast and loose with the rules that you're imposing on others and you're a law enforcement official, then that can boomerang on you. And boy, oh boy, is Fonnie Willis going to turn out to be a cautionary tale, it would appear. Yeah, I got a text message, Dan and Amy. I think she needs DEI training. Uh, Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hey, good morning. Um, gosh, I, I feel like I have so much homework to do after I listen to the show because I have some. You bring up so many subjects that I have to go <laughs> and research. Anyway, I can't work in. Um, I can't get certified with the American Council on Exercise unless I do my diversity and equity inclusion training. And American Council on Exercise. Who, who's the president of that? Arnold Schwarzenegger. I have no freaking idea, you know. I mean, it's American a joke, Council actually, on Exercise. I, yeah, everything's regulated, yeah, man. If you want to do nails, you have to do this. If you want to do lashes, you have to go through. Yeah, you want to do National Academy of Hair. Medicine, you have to do the same thing. So, so to get to get certified to get certified for, by the American Council on Exercise, you have to say whether you like white people or black people more. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. And, you know, you have to. I mean, it's it's not. I don't know what it is because I haven't done my hours training yet. You know, I'll do it. I have to do it before I expire. You know the. Thing, Before you, you expire, or your license does, or both. <laughs> I, well, maybe uh, I will. You know. What, wait, so wait, wait, wait. What does the what what does it certify you to do? Teach. I'll be a personal trainer and group fitness oh. instructor, and oh, I just okay. maintain my right. certification. Like you have to, you got to keep doing continuing education. Oh, of course, continuing legit, continuing you know? identity ed- education. Yeah, of course. Yes. Exactly, Dan. I saw, I tried to send you my business plan yesterday. I wrote the whole thing. Amy, we yeah, you know, I'm ready. Let's go, coach. Train people, people, parents who are empty nesters to be coaches to train in another modality down in Florida. And you don't, we don't have to move. We, I mean, we can. Like I said, I got it all figured out, Dan. I'll try to get to you today. Uh, What's right. the name of the company? Uh, we'll come up with one. You know, um, you come think about it. Am, am, how about AmK? Oh, it sort on, of sounds like Amway. Yeah, AMK. AMK. Oh, it's not Amway. It's not a pond. I said no. I said AMK. Triangle scheme. AMK. Oh, I'm sorry, just trying to, to to draft off the uh, you know all the marketing the DeVos family did. Thanks for the call, Mary Kay. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Dan and uh, Amy and uh, women's basketball, girls basketball. Uh... This uh, coming on the heels of the uh, story out of Massachusetts where that uh, that uh, dude playing on the girls' team for Kip Academy uh, injured three players in the the, the, the girls' high school yeah. basketball game. All before halftime, by the way. Uh, and leading for, for the other team to ultimately forfeit the game. So this is out of Vermont. <clears throat> Something's happening in New England. 
And uh, Chris Goodwin is the girls' basketball coach at Mid-Vermont Christian School. And uh, they've decided that uh, they're not going to play the team in their league with the guy on it. And here's uh, what Chris Goodwin had to say about that, the reason for it. I've got four daughters. I've coached them all at one point uh, in their careers playing high school basketball. I've also filled in for the boys coach when he can't make a practice, and I've run those practices. And boys just play at a different speed. A different force, you know, than the girls play at. It's a different game. Um, so, so I would never bring my girls to a boys' practice or, or have the boys come into our practice and say to them, "Hey, we're going to scrimmage today. We're going to go game speed," because it is just asking for an injury, and, and it'd be irresponsible on my part to put my girls and my daughter on the court uh, to play against male athletes. Maybe that's where this needs to go. Is uh, that word that he used? It irresponsible. You, you say tolerance um, or and I say cowardice and um, you know it's not right. But maybe that's what it is. It's irresponsible. It's reckless. It's, it's reckless disregard for your daughter's well-being to put uh, her and her teammates in that situation. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. Yeah, I mean, it's when they, their policies and their plans affect our children. That's when parents should be drawing the line. Well, the problem, of course, is that, uh, you know, then everybody won't get a trophy because uh, Mid-Vermont Christian School is now, you know, bounced. They're DQ'd from playoffs and, and all you know, sorts of other things. They won't. They're not. They're basically kicked out of the league because you're not in compliance with the conference rules and regulations. But I like that irresponsible. Maybe that speaks to it. Maybe that would get a rise out of these people that are just trying to sort of sheepishly keep their head down and hope nothing bad happens to their kid while they're suborning this sort of silliness and, and dangerous conduct, frankly. Maybe irresponsible. You're calling me a bad parent? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I wonder what Riley Gaines would say to that. I bet she'd be okay with it be interesting when she comes to town uh next month um to ask her that question yeah real quick march 22nd you don't want to miss it belvedere banquets yeah hall and elk grove get tickets today 560 com slash tickets yeah let's let's push that issue are you calling me an, a, a, a bad parent yeah i am and you're so woke wake up who's ready to do that mm, not very many people Dan is, but I don't think a lot of other people are ready to do that. Do you? Everything's supposed to be collegial and fun, even though, of course, we have these, quote-unquote, you know, the proverbial Little League parents that uh, behave boorishly, and there's all sorts of politics associated with all these oh, uh, teams at, at the starting at the grade school level, much less high school. Oh, it's every level. I have to tell you, I've it's never just... seen more fights than parents fighting. Not the kids, but the parents. Right. So they'll go to the mat over playing time or right. or Who's whatever. Starting. Yeah, all the other things. But but over uh, something like a boy playing against their girls and the possibility of injury or just the na- the unfairness, the innate unfairness of it all, that's where they're going to shut up. <laughs> I'm a great parent. No, no, you're not. Are you saying I'm a bad parent? Yeah, 
I'm not a fan. Yeah. Watch it. Uh, I'll call DCFS on you. That'd be fun. No, no, you, you, no. It's the parent that doesn't that doesn't go along uh-huh. that gets DCFS exactly. called on them. Because yeah. to be silent is complete. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're not being an ally. But anyway, the other th- reason I wanted to bring up this story, yes, why? in addition to, I mean, this, this, I think this is obvious to most of our listeners, and you know, most people that are able to assimilate the obvious. So that would exclude the majority of Illinois electorate, but not our audience. Uh, I want to get something else about what Coach Goodwin said about the difference between the boys and girls game. Uh, but let's say Corey in Lake Mills, Wisconsin first. Hey, Corey. Good morning. Thank you. Um, my hardest problem here is the fact that, you know, you got a kid. Your kid is wanting to be great in sports. You do everything you can to support that kid. And then somehow he thinks that he has to become a female. And where is the dad in this? Where is the grandpa? Where is the uncle, the brothers? Yep. This is something that shouldn't be taken care of behind the woodshed. Street and an ass whooping happening, and tell him to get his stuff together. Thanks for the call, Corey. Yeah, I mean that's the other piece too, too, too right? Yeah, to the father of the 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 boy who wants to play on the girls' team and has made enough of a fuss about it that he's on the girls' team. As we see this happening over and over again all over the country. Yeah, um, what are you doing? How, how are you allowing your son to play in that team? Will you call me a bad, a bad parent? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm calling you a bad parent, too. <laughs> I'm calling a lot of and people you, bad parents. And you? Yeah, so, uh, so now that we've got that squared away, uh, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? Oh, this it, I, I'm intolerant? If, if the entire world doesn't reorder itself to your personal preferences, or really to your son's personal preferences, including you reordering yourself, then you're not tolerant or you're... Uh, transphobic or whatever name you're going to call me, man, go ahead, call call me the name, because it's ludicrous. The whole thing is ludicrous, and we all know it, and we're all watching it, and half of us are pretending it isn't ludicrous. I'm not going to pretend. I don't want to live in your pretend world. And uh, there's a whole other people, a whole bunch of other people that don't want to either. So we're going to have to come to some sort of arrangement here. I think the arrangement is this. We're not going to pretend your son is a girl. And that means that your son has to play on the boys team if he wants to play basketball or volleyball or whatever. How about that? So everybody still gets to play sports, but they have to do so in the real world, not the pretend world. James in Naples, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. How about you have a Bob Probert style deal where he yeah. sits on the bench and so yeah. that boy goes in and only plays against that boy? Right. You're bigger, badder, enforcer. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Right. Then it's an arms race. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, right. I'll see your uh, 6'1, 160 pound uh, boy on the girls' team and, you know, right. Meet my six five two twenty guy who's going to be your shadow, right? Of course, it doesn't quite work that way in a sport like basketball, where girls can still be injured even if they're not guarding him. But, um, but yeah, I take your point. But of course, that's just indulging the silliness of it all, making it worse. Um, but I appreciate the the satire. I mean, it's appropriate. 
Anthony and Joliet. Thanks for taking my call. It, it's hard to understand why moron parents would allow their daughters to play uh, young men in any sport. Uh, it's like your middle school child playing uh, senior athlete in high school. Of course they would be uh, brutalized or at least uh, beaten the snot out of. And why would they put their daughters in such a situation? So it, it's just hard to understand. Thanks for the call. Uh, Joe, Tinley Park. Hey, Dan, how are you? Thanks for taking my call. Yep. I appreciate it. Um, my daughter plays softball, uh, Division One softball. We were in sport over the weekend. And uh, Yale, male athlete on their softball. They have a what? Yeah, say that again, you broke up. I'm sorry, they have a male transgender athlete on their softball team. Does he start? Yale, Yale does. Yale does, yeah. He did not play, but the reasoning is he did not take a spot away from a girl scholarship is because Yale, uh, I'm sorry, um, Ivy Leagues do not give right. athletic scholarships. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why they feel that they didn't take away from a girl. But he's, he didn't play, he sat on the bench? He sat on the bench, but he did warm up with them and everything. I didn't know until after after the fact. Huh. So I mean, if if he came up and hit a ball, I I, I don't know. I would afraid to see if it hit our pitcher or something. It would be something that's not right. Yeah, right. That's well. That's the other thing. Like we saw in that field hockey game. Um, Ooh, thanks for the call, Joe. That was brutal. Yeah, where oh, right? He hit the ball so hard, right in knocked her face. Her teeth out. Right. Um, she was concussed. So, but, so the but the other thing I wanted to get to, we mentioned uh, the other day, we didn't get to it. Caitlin Clark. Yeah, what's your she if she scores fifty one points tonight, she will surpass uh what's his name? Peter Maravich from LSU. Oh my god. Did you just say Peter Maravich? Pete Maravich, sorry. Pistol Pete. Pistol Pete. Oh, that's right. Can First you give of me all, those DVDs for with Pistol Pete? Yeah, homework yeah. basketball right. pistol so Pete I Maravich. You wanna teach your kid to play basketball, like the fundamentals of ball handling and passing? Um, I mean, they're they're from a bygone era because, unfortunately, Pistol Pete died at a very young age. He was forty when he had a heart attack and died. Oh. But um, but homework Pistol Pete's homework basketball is so good. I have those DVDs, so we watched them. I'm not kidding you. That was it's, great. And Russell was all conference at Amundsen. It's from an analog world, you. but Pistol Pete was a magician. So that's that phrase that you just uttered. I I'm losing my mind over when I'm when I'm watching college basketball and I have to listen to this. That Caitlin Clark is going to pass Pete Maravich. No, she's not. That is not a conversation in the real world. Caitlin Clark is not the all-time scorer in college basketball. She's the all-time scorer. And she's a really nice player. I've I've watched a couple of games because there's so much fanfare about her. She's a really nice player. The idea... She, so she's the all-time scorer in women's basketball. Right, and she's scored 900 points so far this season. Uh, fascinating. Yeah. That, has, that has nothing to do with anything that Pistol Pete Maravich did. That has nothing to do with men's basketball. They, they are two completely different games. Not to mention, oh, by the way, I mean, it, it's so embarrassing because it, it shows how, you know, the sports press corps, as I always say, mm-hmm. adjunct of the political press corps, a bunch of... 
frustrated athletes and dorks who got comm degrees who just want to be taken seriously as journalists and broadcasters so they adopt the leftism of the political press corps that's basically the summary of the sports press corps pistol pete maravich is the greatest scorer in college basketball history and there's nothing that Caitlin Collins could score a thousand points a game, and it's never going to change what Pistol Pete Maravich was. It's not even close. It's not a conversation. It's a conversation for people who live in the pretend world. Pistol Pete Maravich averaged 44 points a game in three years at LSU without the three point line, without the shot clock. Oh. First of all, he would have averaged probably close to 60 with the three-point line, certainly with the shot clock. And I think Caitlin averages 27. But even that conversation is pretend. The game that Pistol Pete Maravich was playing, in the 60s even. It's a different game. And the game that girls play now or then, I mean, come on. We have a smaller ball too. Well, it's just, it's just I mean, it's just exactly what Coach Goodwin says. And the difference in the speed of the game only increases as you get older and you get into higher amateur ranks and, of course, the professional ranks. I mean, seriously. Pistol Pete Maravich. Or Caitlin, Collin, or Caitlin Clark is going to pass Pistol Pete Maravich. No, she isn't. I don't care how many points she scores. Matt, Southside, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, dear. Good morning. For years now, I've been hearing people say, well, the transgender people just start their own league. And the argument was always, well, there's not enough. Well, the way things are going, we'll probably start having uh, girls' leagues, transgender leagues, and we won't be able to find enough guys to play on the guys' leagues. Well, yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't know about that. I don't know if it's going that far that fast, but uh, Kevin, Austin, Texas. Uh, good morning, Glenn, Amy. The way this stops, and I'm sure you're very well aware, and all your listeners are, is that any politician supports any of this nonsense needs to be punished. One way or the other. The most effective way is to get them voted out of office. Thanks for the call, uh, Kevin. Um, and by the way, there's a good there's a good um, biography on Pistol Pete, since so many people are unfamiliar with him. And this guy was a genius on the basketball court. Like Michael Jordan is a genius on the basketball court. Different game. But his ball handling and passing, it was otherworldly. I I love that you're defending Pistol Pete so much. Well, Pistol Pistol Pete's my favorite basketball player of all time. Yeah, we we know now. But, 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 I mean, I just, I just, I can't, it's just so annoying. First of all, it's, it takes away from Caitlin Clark. Just celebrate her being one of the great female basketball players of all time, Thanks. certainly at college, the, the greatest score and so forth. Stop bringing in people that, it, that she cannot compare to. It's unfair to her, and it's certainly unfair to Maravich. Like, it's just, it's such a lack of respect for genius. That's our general lack of respect for um, as much as we sort of uh, celebrate accomplishment, particularly in sport, in some respects, ironically, we denigrate it because of the need to infuse politics into it. Caitlin, the all-time scorer in college basketball is a woman named Caitlin Clark. No, it isn't. It's Pistol Pete Maravich. 
And until somebody scores more than 44 points a game in three years with no shot clock and no three-point line, it's going to be Pistol Pete Maravich. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I know what you're thinking as it pertains to Ukraine trying to repel the Ruskies with the $60 billion that uh, a lot of Republicans and all the Democrats want to send to Ukraine still pending. Who is going to fill the void left by the United States at present in order to finance a proper gender-inclusive demining operation in Ukraine. What? I know, I know that's what... Oh, that's such a pressing issue. I, I ...is know. on people's mm-hmm. minds, and so I just wanted to update. There is an answer to that question. In Canada, the um, fifth-grade drama teacher, they made the prime minister there, and his government are going to step in. They're providing um, $4 million dollars to Ukraine to fund gender-inclusive mine-sweeping uh, operations. Gender-inclusive mine-sweeping operations. Yeah, this is part of the $3 billion right. in total aid, but, I mean, this is very specific here. Uh, it's, you know, a lot line-itemed, um, very considered, well-planned. This is part of the strategy to, uh, I don't know, make Putin laugh. The uh, gender-inclusive demining Mm-hmm. Uh, the project uh, aims to safeguard the lives and livelihoods of Ukrainians, including women and internally displaced persons, by addressing the threat of explosive ordnance present across the vast areas of the country. Project activities include conducting non-technical surveys and subsequent manual clearance in targeted communities, providing capacity building to key national stakeholders, and establishing a gender and diversity working group to promote gender transformative mine action in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's really where the rubber meets the road. This is where uh, it's going to turn one way or the other. The war effort is whether or not the gender transformative demining goes well or doesn't. I mean, if you want to have a laugh at the Canadian's expense, be careful. Be careful of that plank in your eye, Americans, because, of course, At the same time, the um, policymakers, the great strategic national security thinkers in Canada are cooking this up, I I assume in conjunction with Zelensky, or he's just saying, just give me money. You can put it by any line item you want, and we'll use it for what we need. Uh, But at the same time, that's going on. Yeah. Animatronic Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, has uh, penned a memo that direct State Department employees to refrain from using gendered terms such as mother, oh, father, and manpower. Stop it. It always lasts to know. I mean, this is so like five years ago for the Ivy League. But anyway, at least the State Department's finally catching up. A, uh, no, a, a memo entitled Modeling DEIA. Don't forget the A. I always tell people that. 
Biden encourages colleagues at the State Department to use gender-neutral language wherever possible to show respect and avoid misunderstandings. Obviously, you also identify employees by their preferred pronouns in emails and when introducing themselves in emails, if they are comfortable with being referenced generically as themselves, of course. Mothers are mothers, and fathers are born not birthing people. um, I earned that right. Parent, parent one, uh, adult unit. Uh, Assuming an individual's gender identity simply based on their appearance or name can be problematic, says Secretary of State Blinken, because it can convey a harmful and exclusionary message. I mean, um, President Xi and Putin and the mullahs in Tehran, they must be quaking. Oh, yeah. At the strength this memo belies. I know our enemies are watching this craziness too. Uh, well, I yeah. lost you. I lost hope in the Ukrainian war when they had that Ukrainian transgender American spokesperson Sarah Ashton Carillo. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, how disgusting was that? That's what well, made me think that this is a clown show. For uh, more on uh, this and uh, perhaps some other serious matters, please be joined by Brigadier General Anthony Tata. He's former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. He uh, served our military for 28 years, including which included commands in the 82nd Airborne, 101st Airborne, and the 10th Mountain Division, as well as operations in Afghanistan, Bosnia, Croatia, North Macedonia, Kosovo, Panama, and Haiti. He currently leads his consulting firm, Tata Leadership Group, and is the managing partner of Boundary Channel Partners. He's got a new book. He's also a novelist. His new book is entitled The Phalanx Code, a Garrett Sinclair novel. General Tata, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan and Amy. Great to be with you all. You know, the title of my next book is going to be Gender Transformative Mind Action. I I think that's a real catchy headline. And... um, I'm, I'm going to get to work on it right away. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long concern it's, of mine. It's cutting edge. I mean, it there's is. no doubt. Um, so you're so hip. Yeah, you want You definitely want to stay up with what is au courant. Um, so uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 absurd. It would seem to the layman like me. But by this, and, and, and here's what you're going to get when you ask like people this. You know, I, I don't want to talk about. It. It's a distraction. Let's not. It, yeah, it is a distraction, but but it's being um, perpetrated. These distractions are being perpetrated by the people who are supposed to not be distracted. So that's a distraction to me as the taxpayer and the concerned American that this is what Lloyd Austin and General Milley and Secretary of State Blinken and our partners in the West spend so much time worrying about and, frankly, even attaching money to it in the context of a war effort in Eastern Europe. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You know, um, whether it was my career in the paratroopers and uh, leadership positions around uh, the world or as the undersecretary uh, performing the duties there, um, I, the, the policy of the United States should be anchored on one thing, and that's the national defense strategy, and uh, which really gets to vital interests of the United States. What are those vital interests that we must protect? And um, all this, all this stuff is a distraction, quite frankly. And and the, that people even pretend to be serious and are putting this in documents and so forth um, tells you the level of of uh, unseriousness of of folly that is happening. Um, and whether it was Afghanistan and uh, the the way things unraveled there, um, all the way up to think about Ukraine. 
um, this uh, Blinken offered Zelensky a ride out on the eve of the invasion. Remember that, and and nobody talks about it. Uh, but uh, think if um, another president had offered a ride out, to, had offered to decapitate the Ukrainian government on the eve of the Russian invasion. Um, the instincts of this this um, uh, you know Zelensky said you know famously, I, I don't need. Uh, a ride. I need ammo, and uh, the, you know the, the the folly of this administration. They are they are just unserious people uh, doing unserious things uh, that uh, have serious consequences. And uh, you know, in part, that's what the phalanx code tries to capture: is the political division right now that we're seeing in the country. And it's not a political book; it's a it's a novel, right? But um, it's hard to write a novel where you're not. Uh, accurately capturing the backdrop of America that is really divided. And the protagonist, Garrett Sinclair, who commands and leads soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, uh, is asking himself the question, is their service, is my service worth it? Um, and and uh, when, when you have unserious people leading the country, that's essentially the theme of the phalanx code, and he's put in this dilemma of man versus mission, as we talk about in the military. So um, it's uh, and it you know deals with techno fascism and, and that kind of thing as well. But uh, uh, it's uh, we're we're in a tough position right now, and we you know it's it's best to to make fun of it and laugh at it because it's so damn serious. Pardon my French. Well, you know, and maybe this would they will inspire some Americans too, including our men and women in in uh, uniform, to see the sacrifices of others. And I don't know if you saw it, but uh, no less a uh, seminal figure in American history than Hunter Biden has said that he is willing to maintain his sobriety to save democracy, saying that I have something much bigger than even myself at stake. We're in the middle of a fight for the future of democracy. So if Hunter Biden can refrain from using crack or cocaine in order to save democracy, I mean, think what the rest of us should be able to do. Well, I mean, when he said that, I think there was a little dusting of white powder. Maybe he was eating sugar donuts um, (laughs) when he was talking. But, uh, uh, you know, that clown show, I I mean— as uh, just the epitome of, of corruption in this co- uh, country. And, and uh, you know, how incompetent do you have to be to leave your laptop with all the evidence of your dad's corruption um, in some, you know, computer shop? So do you think Biden, <laughs> so, President Biden, uh, has been compromised then by Ukraine, by China? Because of absolutely. Uh, there's, there's, there's no question in my mind uh, that, uh, he, you know, his foreign policy decision-making is based upon uh, the level to which, uh, you know, these people are exerting pressure on him. Um, and, and you know, quite frankly, you know, I, I know Lloyd Austin very, very well. I served directly uh, for him twice. I was a battalion commander in the 82nd Airborne when he was a brigade commander, and I was his deputy commanding general when he was a commanding general of the 10th Mountain Division. And, and, and you know, this report that came out yesterday or whenever it came out saying, you know, that was ordered by the person who made all the mistakes, uh, saying the report said they made no mistakes. Uh, there's no accountability in this administration, and that comes straight from Biden and how compromised he is because he can't hold anybody accountable. He can't break the narrative. He has to maintain um, uh, that everything is awesome 
nobody's been fired over Afghanistan. Nobody's been fired over the Secretary of Defense disappearing for for a week. Uh, even you know, and I, I pray pray to God he's he's healthy and all that. I know him very very well. He's a good man. He served our country, but he also made an egregious mistake. That think about it. If if that had happened under Trump, uh, the the you know, either, you know, they'd be calling for Article 25 on Trump or, you know, calling for the head of the Secretary of Defense or whatever. But, you know, this administration gets such a pass and nobody's pressing the issue of the compromise that uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, uh, you know, the Biden family has, uh, uh, you know, there's so much evidence out there, but they got to maintain this narrative or, or, or because it's all about power. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about power for these people. Well, you know, again, in government, um, mistakes make themselves and our borders secure. And uh, that's all you need to know. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, but I did, I did since, since uh, China was raised, you know, Peter Schweitzer, the author of Clinton Cash and uh, Secret Empires, he's got a new book out called Blood Money. And it really talks a lot about China, particularly what uh, he sees per some of their own military documents as their strategy borrowing from Sun Tzu, to defeat your enemy without fighting. And he specifically points to uh, fentanyl. He points to uh, efforts that the Chinese make to uh, you know, go after our soft underbelly, if as it were, um, the Confucius Institutes at our colleges, you know, sort of the indoctrination piece of it. And then we have this other curious case, uh, speaking of the border, where you have all these military-age uh, Chinese nationals that are coming in mainly through uh, San Diego without families. And, you know, I, I don't know what's exactly happening there, but you have some reasonable suspicions about it. And I just wonder sort of what your perspective is on all of these things happening simultaneously and, you know, your understanding of the geopolitics of China's uh, global interests. Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's interesting. I did a signing for Phalanx Code last night in Vero Beach, Florida, and I had dinner afterwards with some very close friends of uh, Peter's. And, and and Peter's actually uh, coming to be with them uh, tonight or tomorrow. And and they said you can't believe what he's going to re- reveal in the next uh, you know few weeks. And and so I, I'm uh, you know I used to, I, I I know Peter, and um, he's done uh, such a tremendous uh, service to this country into um, uh, democracy in our republic uh, by uh, continuing to expose this, despite the mainstream media's, uh, you know, efforts to block and conceal and deny. Um, uh, I, I think the convergence uh, between Ukraine and China uh, and, and, and the corruption of the Biden family is uh, playing out before our very eyes, this war in, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, the, the continuous efforts uh, to uh, fund this thing are, uh, uh, you know, it, it's never ending. There's no diplomacy. And it's and there was no effort to get in front of it when uh, Putin was building up on the border. Uh, think about that. Why was that? Why was Blinken just uh, silent on the whole thing? Why was there no engagement? Uh, it's almost as if they wanted it to happen. And and I'll tell you, there are two reasons. One is because um, uh, Biden's corrupt and he's compromised uh, by Ukraine, in my opinion. And two is he fundamentally broke NATO in Afghanistan and uh, by leaving in the way he did. And and so 
when when you leave 29 other NATO nations there hanging to fend for themselves, there were some angry people to uh, that angry NATO nation. So what better way to, quote unquote, unify NATO than to have a common threat uh, and not reveal how broken NATO actually is and how much he did to break NATO? Secondly, on China, uh, the 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 passivity that that we are seeing here is is uh, uh, you know part of the corruption and compromise as well. Uh, the um, oh, that's that's I mean that's that's I mean it's interesting and disturbing. And now the the other piece of it, which is sort of a combination of uh, of domestic and um, and foreign, given the reporting from uh, journalists like Matt Taibbi and Mike Schellenberger. Is the surveillance state, and this is also part of the backdrop of your new novel, The Phalanx Code, uh, and and what we're learning. Sort of... Hey, Brigadier General, can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, we lost Dan for a second, but he was asking about uh, tech surveillance and in your new book and how that plays a part in this new book because I know that you've written fifteen military thrillers. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, thank you, Amy. Uh, the um, 16, uh, 16th book is Phalanx Code, and uh, think um, uh, the uh, Phalanx Corporation in this book is to think the worst instincts of digital carnivores like Facebook and Google uh, attempting to annihilate uh, a, a company I call Project Optimus, uh, which uh, think Elon Musk and X um, to break through that last defense of individual liberty and freedom in the digital world. That's, that's the backdrop here. And our, our hero Garrett Sinclair gets pulled in by Project Optimus to help protect the coders and developers of Project Optimus against the phalanx assassin squads. And, and this is techno fascism at its worst. And, and really, it's not too much of a stretch. Uh, think about uh, the uh, techno fascism coming from the Biden White House, where you have some 30 year old calling up, uh, uh, if, if that old, uh, calling up some other 30 year old at Twitter uh, saying, hey, we don't like these accounts. Take them down. Uh, right. We don't like what these are pe- pe- uh, people are saying. Uh, block them or, or mute them or, you know, what, what a shadow ban is the term, I guess. And and then, the, you know, sickening, weaponizing the FBI uh, to work with. Um, Facebook and Twitter and Google to to uh, create the bias that we see today in, in AI results and that kind of thing. So it's, you know, I wrote this book a couple of years ago because you got to turn in a book and it takes about a year to get it to market. And, How did you know? Uh, for Sam Martin's books. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, just research and kind of seeing, you know, all of my experience and in, in, um, working with uh, the um uh, uh, yeah, as the Undersecretary of Defense and technology and seeing where it's going. And um, it just was a logical end state. And I spent a lifetime trying to figure out what the bad guys are trying to do, the good guys. And truly, uh, these um, digital carnivores, I call them, um, are, are, are bad guys. They're bad actors in, in, in this digital privacy space. And, and, and if you link a government up with these, uh, you collude the two together, you fuse the two together, that's techno-fascism with a jackboot on the neck of the individual. That's anti-American, it's un-American, and it's happening. Um, and that's the epic struggle that we have today 
in, in, in America. And that's what I try to capture in the phalanx code. All right, Brigadier General Anthony Tata, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll have you back. Maybe. Appreciate it. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So, two Democrat governors, Bashir in Kentucky, just reelected, incredibly, and uh, Roy Cooper in North Carolina, penned this op-ed in the uh, USA Today. You know, for those who like to play with their food, that's their news outlet. Anyway, uh, <laughs> those two. That's a great analogy. Those two knuckleheads, uh, I mean, it's basically an anti-school choice screed. I mean, they, they, I tell you, I got to give the teachers union and the politicians they own credit, um, despite having clearly lost the argument and increasingly losing ground. They're not giving up. They don't give up easily. They don't give an inch of turf easily, as we've seen in Illinois, being the with the history-making uh, repeal of the tax credit scholarship program in this state. Rest. but any, Yeah, so the argument goes, the Republican plan is to loot the public, the government schools. The, we're gonna, the, government, the, the Republicans are looting government schools who see their you know, per-pupil expenditures going up at a 45-degree angle, which has been the case for the better part of the last three decades, almost everywhere, but okay. And uh, don't forget, I mean, they just try out the same, that uh, they're resuscitating, like it was dormant, this, these uh, scholarships that were initially used by Southern governors during Jim Crow to do an end run around integration. I mean, the fact that they can have, have make those arguments and have any self-respect is a real triumph of uh, sort of human rationalization for me because, of course, without exception, these scholarship programs in the last 30 years since Milwaukee have all been focused on the poor uh, or disproportionately minority families and their kids and then expanded from there. But even if you expand from there in places like Indiana to include honkies that are lower or lower or uh, or middle income families, it's still for the purposes of integration because the kids all want to get out of their their uh, neighborhood school and go to the better school that all the kids want to go to, regardless of their race. So it actually facilitates more integration than you get in the actually segregated K through 12 systems like the Chicago government schools. I mean, it's the most back-ass-word argument that you can possibly make, and yet they persist in making it because they have to serve their overlords. It just astounds me that there's people that are still buying this. Anyway, for more on this topic and other matters of economic import, please be joined by economist Steve Moore, author of Govzilla. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Appreciate it. 
Okay, so how much time have you got? Because <laughs> I did read that op-ed piece by uh, by those two governors, and, and I'm still fuming about it. And you did a very good job, Dan, Dan of uh, dismantling their arguments. But I forget whether you mentioned, Dan, that the um, that these two governors sent their own kids to private school. No, now, of course. Oh, oh. But they're yeah. saying. Oh, my kids can go to private schools, but those poor black kids down the street, they can't. I mean, this is, if I sound angry, I am, because this is such a fraudulent argument. And for them to bring up the idea of Jim Crow laws, look, the most segregated schools in the country are the public schools. The private schools in this country are less um, segregated than the the public schools. So not one single argument that they made was, was accurate. Not to mention their uh, cohorts, their party is promoting neo segregation at the same time. I mean, they're they're the ones yeah. they're the ones that have an Atlanta grade school that where the black teachers teaching the black students and the white teachers teaching the white students, and a <laughs> black point. mom had to sue That's the school district point. over this violates this obvious violation of Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, that the whole thing is. I, what they get away with it just just it is it is infuriating it's exasperating well, yeah, look, it's frustrating another, it's all those things yeah there's another point here look even if we had you and i uh and amy we'd like to see universal school choice let let every it should be a human right every parent should be able to send their kids to the best school they can i mean what's so complicated about that every child whether they're black whether they're brown whether they're hispanic whether they're low income high income should be able to to send their kids to an excellent school and should have the right to choose which school they want their kids to go to. Now, here's what's uh, amazing. You know, my son just graduated from college and he's now teaching at a, uh, a, a Catholic grade school in Miami. And it's mostly minority kids. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost all. It's, it's incredibly multicultural. And you know what he gets paid? Twenty thousand dollars a year in the school. Yeah. Well, now they do give him housing and, and other expense, but but the point is, you know, down the street, the the decrepit public schools that don't teach the kids anything, the teachers make eighty thousand dollars a year. And my point is, all virtually all of the kids in that program in that Catholic school are minorities. And they are so benefiting from it. And, you know, I've gone to his class and seen these kids and they're wonderful and they're learning a lot. You know, some of them are challenged because they, you know, come from broken families and so on. But here's the thing. It costs that Catholic school one half as much per student as it does the public schools, the ones just on the street. So why not use that kind of model? And one other quick thing, Dan and Amy, you know, I'm an economist. What, what leads to better service is competition. <laughs> I think the biggest beneficiaries of school choice will be the public schools because they're going to have to compete. All right. Uh, I know. It's, it's, it's I mean, the, do you the, disagree the with that, rage. Dan? I mean, uh, of course not. Of course not. I mean, the bat, it's just the battle rages on, and you have to, you have to keep fighting. And, and frankly, um, I mean, the, the, at least in North Carolina, they had uh, Roy Cooper had to back down over his opposition to school choice because of Republican-controlled uh, legislature there and and hopefully that will lead some north carolinians to rethink their choice when it comes to the president and statewide office holders going forward so um yeah but the fight continues i wanted to get to um, a couple other topics too because i I you know i love the hilarity of the befuddled uh western nations including our own but 
but it's even worse in Europe. Uh, the, the the headline uh, out of Germany, uh, Germany, which has eschewed nuclear energy, it now wants to consider whether or not they should restock uh, with nuclear weapons because of America's pullback, uh, perceived pullback from <laughs> providing Europeans their security against uh, foreign aggressors like the Russians and the Chinese. So no nuclear energy to power our economy, but we're going to consider nuclear weapons. Well, look, it's about time that Europe, uh, I'm going to start, sound a little bit like Donald Trump here, but I'm a big believer that Europe is, should be responsible mostly for its own defenses. And Trump has been right that the, the uh, Europeans have not ponied up, and we've paid way more than our fair share, even though the Russians and the Chinese are in their backyard, not our backyard. But, you know, the, the important point is, why is it? Why is it that the, the left is opposed to nuclear power? I mean, nuclear power emits no carbon into the atmosphere. It is the ultimate solution to, uh, you know, if you're worried about climate change, then you should be 100% in favor of nuclear power. Well, they power. hear the word nuclear, and not. that's a trigger. No. I know, because, it is. You're right. You, you know, the, the, word that's a tri- the word that's a trigger to them, as we now know, is, is not nuclear. <laughs> well, is, is growth. Is growth. <laughs> right, right. And, and you can't world. have, and you and I are saying the same thing because you can't have growth without energy. Right. <laughs> the more expensive you make, uh, you know, the whole history of human progress has been finding ways to use energy to increase, you know, uh, our living standards. And so Europe is a basket case right now, folks. I mean, Europe is receding. It is so tied up in the knots by this green energy nonsense that they that they are deindustrializing that, that continent. And what's so scary, Anna and Amy, is we can see what happened over there because they're ten years ahead of us on this green energy nonsense. And now we're doing it here, even though we know it doesn't work. And their gas is so expensive. And I don't know if they raise those prices just to drive people out of cars to take public transportation. Of course they do. Or what? Of Just like Gavin do. Newsom does. I mean, why is gas still almost cares. $7 in California? It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, look, people have to understand, the left hates cars. They don't want people driving cars for a lot of reasons, but cars signify freedom. You can go anywhere, anytime, as you want, and they don't want, they want to stick everybody on buses and, and uh, you know, rail systems. All right, Stephen Moore, I have to ask, did you have cereal for dinner? Because in these tough times, when consumers are under what? pressure... Here's the, C- the Kellogg's CEO. The cereal category has always been quite affordable, and it tends to be a great destination when consumers are under pressure. So some of the things that we're doing is first messaging. we got to reach the consumer where they are. So we're advertising about cereal for dinner. If you think about the cost of cereal for a family versus what they might otherwise do, that's going to be much more affordable. Who's laughing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're laughing. Are you making this up? Is that a parody? No, he no. was on. He was on. Um, What's wrong with CNBC for dinner? He was on CNBC saying that there, it's a new marketing ploy because I don't know. I'm sure you haven't been to the grocery store, but uh, everything's gone up. It's the most expensive groceries have oh, been in 30 god. years. Oh my god! <laughs> that is the the deepest uh, indictment of uh, of Bidenomics I've ever heard. I mean, um, that's an unbelievable thing. Cereal for dinner? No meat, no uh, no protein. You just get you just get uh, special K, right? Yeah, well, there's protein well, you gotta, in the flakes. You got to meet people where they are, as uh, <laughs> as he said, and and mainly they're in migrant shelters. So um, I bet they're not know. eating cereal for dinner, but we are. A cereal. That's what's way, for I dinner. Saw, I just yeah. saw. I just saw, by the way, um, a report by Bloomberg. Guess which state in the United States had the biggest increase in migrant flow in 2023? New York. 
No. It's the biggest increase. Oh. Um, I don't know. Dan, you want to take a stab? Illinois. Illinois. Yeah, of course. You guys wanted them. You got them. Oh, no. no, We have them. It's great. When it's warm out, they're on every street corner doing whatever they want, juggling or chicklets. I got to tell you guys, you know, uh, I I have a lot of friends in the uh, North Shore area, and that's an affluent area. And um, some of them are liberals. And they're like, where did all these migrants come from? Yeah, exactly. They're so hypocritical. Meet your new neighbors. They're supposed to go to the low-income areas, not here in you know, Wilmette and Winnetka, come on. That's not where they were supposed to put the migrants. Well, tell your tell your rich friends, your Tony friends on the North Shore, to uh, yeah. go to the store, uh, pick up a box of Captain Crunch, and have some migrants <laughs> over for dinner. <laughs> By the way, they, they probably have an empty bedroom in their house. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Steve Moore, uh, economist, Godzilla author. Thanks as always, Steve. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Bye, Thanks. guys. You too, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and and Amy and I uh, saw in Governor Jelly Belly's uh, latest budget when he, per his state of the state address, that he's got uh, more goodies for the EV community. So uh, not just uh, the hundreds of millions in subsidies for the uh, Tricom-backed EV battery facility in Mantino, but millions of dollars more for EV training centers to be set up and. So on and so Just forth. Just opened this, up another plant yesterday. He was there the, for that. Uh, this doesn't even include the uh, state-level subsidies for EV purchases, right? Because EVs are the futures. They're, they're going to be ubiquitous. Uh, or, you know, by God, we're going to die trying is essentially the attitude. Well, there's uh, this interesting piece about hydrogen energy. Now, this is the prospect of hydrogen as alternative energy is not new, but um, perhaps very much like the discovery of the deposits of rare earth metals in rare earth minerals, that is, in Wyoming, maybe there are uh, indigenous sources of energy and combined with technological advancements and things like translating hydrogen into energy to power vehicles that uh, provide for more avenues for independence when it comes to our own sustainability and growth from our enemies, rare earth minerals, so we don't need to rely on the Chinese communists and our own energy sources, so we don't need to rely on OPEC nations, for example. Well, let's explore that a little bit, particularly the uh, hydrogen energy piece. We're pleased to be joined with James Coleman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focused on energy policy. He's also a law professor at SMU, specializing in energy trade and North American environmental and energy regulation. Professor Coleman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. It's great to talk with you. So, I mean, this uh, debate about, uh, you know, sort of hydrogen fueled uh, cars versus EVs uh, is not new, um, but it, it had seemed like the um, Tesla approach had won the day. And and I wonder what the story of um, tons of buried hydrogen energy deposits, hydrogen deposits that could potentially be a source of of uh, propelling the American economy. What what is what is new about this in terms of the larger debate about what's practical? Yeah, so the advantage of either electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles is that they don't emit carbon dioxide when they're uh, when they're traveling. And so the idea would be that hydrogen could be a replacement for electric vehicles. But the big advantage of hydrogen is that like a few, like a regular fuel, like gasoline, you can fuel up in a relatively short period of time. I mean, unlike, you know, electricity, where we've, we've seen all the challenges with charging, where, you know, even on a good day, it takes you 30 minutes to mostly charge up your car and it can be you know much more difficult and cold or other circumstances hydrogen would be you know more flexible and more like a traditional gasoline vehicle and able to uh you know charge up quickly there's also a number of other things that hydrogen could be used for it's just most people project that you know if we really get to a zero carbon economy a big part of that will be a lot of dependence on hydrogen and, you know, we've always known that we could manufacture hydrogen, but what's relatively new is this idea that maybe, you know, there are already reserves under the ground that we can access. Mm. And, and so this could to potentially produce a sort of another uh, fracking boom of sorts. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You know, and you know, in that respect, maybe it's a little bit similar to some of the you know, excitement that you sometimes see about geothermal energy, where a lot of it is driven by the advances that we've seen because of fracking and our drilling technology that if we you know apply this in another area uh you know whether it's drilling for heat under the ground as we do with geothermal or drilling for some of these you know newly found hydrogen stores uh that could you know provide us with maybe more practical ways to clean our energy supply and so um so, so i just want to go back though in terms of hydrogen uh, energy development so with respect to deposits that we could uh, mine or, um, uh, or or hydrogen fueling facilities we could set up, is this going to be something where uh, it's still going to require, well, requires a, a charged word, but it it still may lead to sort of a competition of which get uh, which energy sources get subsidized at what levels because. Obviously, unlike the electric charging stations that can hook up to the grid, these hydrogen fueling facilities would have to be built, if you're thinking about it in terms of domestic vehicles, would have to be built with that specific purpose in mind, like a gas station is to be a hydrogen fueling facility. So is it possible to privatize them and run them through big hydrogen energy companies the way that we do gas stations? Or are we talking about green energy subsidies over here and green energy subsidies over there and more industrial policy? Well, I probably initially you would be talking about more subsidies. And in fact, if you look at the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, not only does it include big subsidies for solar and wind production, for electric vehicles, but also um, for hydro- use of hydrogen and production of hydrogen. And so, you know, this is another area where we have big subsidies 
you know, of course, the hope with all of these things is that you would eventually get to a point where you don't need to subsidize them. But, uh, you know, certainly with solar and wind and electric vehicles, we're nowhere near that. Um, and so hopefully, I, mean, I guess the hope of hydrogen would be that you get to that a little bit uh, more quickly and so that you spend less on those subsidies. Is hydrogen easy to store? No. And so hydrogen is very difficult to store. I mean, it's actually more difficult to store than natural gas. I mean, often how difficult a molecule is to store depends on its size, and hydrogen is a very small molecule, even smaller than a natural gas molecule, which a natural gas molecule is smaller than an oil molecule. And so that means that the pipelines that you have um, to transport hydrogen and the storage that you have to hold hydrogen um, are potentially expensive. Uh, that, with that said, I mean, we've had a huge revolution in our use of natural and natural gas because we've gotten better at doing that at an affordable price. So it's not, you know, it's not an insurmountable challenge, but it's, but, you know, all the same challenges that we have with natural gas about, can you get your pipeline built? Is, is the president going to, you know, stop your new liquefied natural gas uh, facility exports, all those same challenges about permitting and building those uh, transport and storage projects would exist. Um, and, and so I remember having this conversation um, about energy policy with an executive at Briggs Stratton, and he was talking about that they were looking to move in the direction of hydrogen um, for uh, their industrial engines, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But the zeitgeist was all in the direction of electric batteries, and so they sort of scrapped that because they could see where sort of the public policy makers were going to put their, well, put other people's money, to be specific. Um, so is that the only reason why we're so EV-focused now as opposed to hydrogen focus? Is it, it was just a, a an industrial policy choice and maybe not the best one? Or um, is there other sort of other variables that have brought us to this place? Well, uh, so, yes, uh, you know, there certainly has been an industrial policy push, but also, you know, there are particular areas where you've seen real advancements in batteries. So, you know, as an example, you know, I think a lot of people didn't really think electric vehicles could ever be, uh, could ever be profitable without subsidies until uh, Elon Musk made them profitable you know, with subsidies, but um, but increasingly Tesla looks like it would be profitable even without subsidies. So while a lot of, you know, well, a lot of the action that you're seeing in electric vehicles would never exist without the subsidies, and even Tesla wouldn't have gotten over the hump without those subsidies, I think even if subsidies went away today, you would see that, you know, Tesla and maybe a very few other cases would use electric vehicles. So I do think that, you know, part of that is about uh, market change, although it's hard to separate what's happened from the market versus what's happened from the government subsidies. So there are and have been subsidies for electric for uh, fuel cell vehicles relying on hydrogen. You have some fuel cell vehicles and infrastructure in California, but it really hasn't taken off compared with electric vehicles. And, you know, that initial push into electric vehicles, one of the initial things was sort of consumers attracted to the very fast vehicles that you saw Tesla developing. Uh, and that's not the hydrogen technology is a little bit more practical, but is not as it doesn't have that sort of zero to 60 in three seconds supercar uh, attraction that 
threw off some of the interest in electric vehicles. Right. But I mean, when, when, of course, the political class says this is the next big thing and they start pouring money into it, they're never going to stop. And, and so that necessarily uh, produces opportunity costs like it crowds out uh, interest in investing in alternatives. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you're if you're talking about uh, you, know, you mentioned Brinkman Stratton, if you're talking about you know lawn care stuff, you know that that doesn't require as much storage of energy as something like heavy duty uh, truck transport. And so, you know, I'm still pretty optimistic about the use of hydrogen and things like heavy duty truck transport or you know overseas shipping, et cetera. For for sort of your domestic application of your you know, your leaf blower or your lawnmower, um, I do think you'll see a lot more of that going in the direction of um, of electricity. Just even if you only had market forces, but as you, but you know as you've said, of course, a lot of that has been pushed by heavy subsidization. And so, if if this uh, you know has that uh, practical application or those practical applications you're talking about, and with the um, the, the projection that there's more than 5 trillion tons of hydrogen in underground reserves around the world. I mean, this, um, you know, sort of this has the potential to be a significant source of energy over time for the Western world in a way that would uh, provide a path to sort of long term energy independence for America. Well, that's possible, though, of course, we don't know where the accessible reserves will be, right? I mean, this is, you know, this is an industry that's very much in its You know, a number of the sort of recent news stories have been about reserves in Africa of hydrogen, et cetera. Now, there are have been some discoveries of reserves in the United States. If those prove to be ones that are, you know, accessed economically, it would be very important. And because this industry is so new, we don't really know how much is going to be driven by the sophistication of the industry and the technology. I mean, in the case of fracking, you know, the U.S. both had good reserves, but perhaps more importantly was the place that showed the best financial and technological innovation to really access those shale reserves. Um, There's an open question about whether that would sort of bring us to the front in hydrogen production or whether we find out that, well, actually the best hydrogen reserves are somewhere else and Africa, Asia, or elsewhere. Okay, so it's it's, it's that it's that uh, nascent in its development that's interesting. Uh, James Coleman is non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focused on energy policy. Also a law professor at SMU, specializing in energy trade and North American environmental and energy regulation. Professor James Coleman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, and he joined us on our Turnkey dot Pro Answer line. Before you see it on TV. Share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Dan and Amy, uh, we've got some exclusive audio from that uh, DEIA training that uh, Fawnie Willis did in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. This is, uh, we were talking before, Breitbart had the receipts. They had the slides where... Uh, employees of the Fulton County DA's office would have to answer questions like, um, do you like black people a little bit, a lot of bit? Do you feel more comfortable with white people or black people? Right. Uh, Included slides where white people are synonymous with bad, good people are synonymous 
uh, black people are synonymous with good, so on and so forth. You sort of get the gist of it. Uh, that was uh, Fawny Willis's um, uh, instructional uh, training sessions in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. What you talking about, Willis? That's what she was talking about. She's talking about getting people up to speed with identitarian politics. And this is how some of it went with uh, some of the honky employees uh, over at the Fulton County DA. I love black people! So I think it was taking, I think it was working. <laughs> I'd hate to have her sidelined when it's just starting to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so Nathan Wade's former divorce, divorce attorney testified yesterday. Yeah. That could have gone better. Yeah, I think. I don't know. Did he claim he had amnesia or just acted like he had amnesia? Well, he um, he uh, sort of recast things he said as things that were speculative in nature not he didn't he didn't know them for sure mm-hmm. um this is um terrence bradley wade's former divorce attorney when you told me that their relationship started when she left the da's office and was a judge in south fulton where did you obtain that knowledge from it was I was speculating. Um, I didn't have a um, no one told me I was speculating. Yeah, I was. I was, just, <laughs> I was speculating. Was there a basis for your speculation? No. No. One I just like to baselessly speculate. So the other, the predicate to that, though, is even better because when he was shown text messages he sent to Ashley Merchant, one of Trump's defense attorneys, well, Mike Roman's defense attorneys, but one of the, you know, the Trump universe defense attorneys, mm-hmm. uh, about when the relationship between Fawny and Nathan Wade started. And he had said, oh, yeah, it started back when she was a Ful- uh, South Fulton judge, right. you know, so years prior to what they represented in court when he was presented with his text messages he 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 muttered oh dang um you never i mean you don't need to be a practicing lawyer to know that you never want somebody who is a witness for the defense to say oh dang that's that's an indication things aren't going as well as they could be going okay before you see it on tv Share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, that uh, momentum coming out of South Carolina because she got 40% of the vote uh, didn't quite translate in Michigan where no, she, got she got 28% of the vote. Banked. I mean, it's just, this is Embarrassing just, now. It's just, it's, it's fine. Just play it out, whatever. No, whatever. Um, anyway, um, 
The um, so I mean, I let's, let's talk a little bit about Michigan. It's sort of more interesting as we talked about it in a general election from a general election perspective than it was what was going to happen yesterday. Other than the um, fact that uh, uh, non-committed earned a delegate on the Dem side. I know. I saw that. Hundred thousand well, votes. I mean, it's nothing to scoff at. It's interesting. So, I mean, that uh, effort by Rashida Tlaib to lodge a protest vote against Biden for not being pro-Hamas enough tur- turned out to be somewhat impactful. Yeah, uncommitted um, beat uh, Dean Phillips and uh, Williamson. Mm. Yeah. So um, n- this uh, this just in for Bill Ackman, who thought Dean Phillips could have some sort of significant showing on uh, uh, in Michigan yesterday. Start to get used to the prospect that it is going to be Trump and Biden there, Bill. Anyway, um, the the issue against uh, that provided the backdrop of yesterday's election and increasingly the entire election careening towards November, of course, is border security. And on that issue, House Speaker Mike Johnson came out of a meet with the White House yesterday and had this to say. But again, the first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. I I believe the president can take executive authority right now today to change that. And I told him that again today in person, as as I've said to him many times, publicly and privately over the last several weeks. It's time for action. It is a catastrophe and it must stop. And we will get the government funded and we'll keep working on that. So we'll have more. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, the essentially the repetition of the posture of the House Republicans that are the bulwark against uh, surrender on border security that was attempted to be engineered by Mitch McConnell and Jim Lankford a couple of weeks ago. My uh, view of it, but mm-hmm. I think the view of it of Republicans generally. Uh, and so that's still the position. Go, uh, please see H.R. 2. We passed it out of the House. That's a pretty good expression of what we would like to see done by the, the administration. And then the flip side is, from White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre, who just does the we're trying, we're trying to find common ground. Uh, they're moving the goalposts on us. They're being obstructionists and recalcitrant and so on and so forth. And I appreciate the question. I don't even think he knows what he wants. No, sir. And I say that very seriously. They first asked for when we put forward the national security supplemental, it had border security in it. And we were told by the speaker and others, we need to deal with the border security challenges first. You had a bipartisan group of senators coming uh, coming out of the Senate, working for four months with, with the White House to put forward a bipartisan piece of legislation that dealt with a important, important, uh, important challenge that we see at the border and immigration. And then so we did that. We moved that forward. We presented it. And it, we were told, no, 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 no. We want... We, we don't want the border security. We want just the national security supplemental without border security. Then the Senate goes back and they pass the national security supplemental without border security, 7029. We did that, or they did that, and the speaker refuses to put that to the floor. So what is it that he really wants here? If you look at the border security deal, that proposal, it has components of that has what the speaker has been talking about for years. So the question is really for him. Like, Yeah, yeah. I'm going to bat it right back at you and see if uh, we can get away with that. Muddy the waters. We're trying to be bipartisan, and Mike Johnson is being obstinate. See if that works. 
For more on this, please be joined by Susan Crabtree, RealClearPolitics.com's national political correspondent. Susan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Nice to be with you. So, um, you know, that that, um, that that thrust and parry between Johnson and the White House, uh, it seems pretty clear that Biden is getting the worst of that, thus his need to... His, the, 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 the need he feels to go to the border tomorrow. Absolutely. You know, we're going to have supposedly dueling press conferences at the border. Um, what I think is strange is that he has come out. There's been talk that he's going to issue executive orders to crack down on the border, similarly to what Trump, some of the policies Trump had. Um and we were told that he couldn't, by by Karine Jean-Pierre and other White House officials, that right. there is no way he could have done anything about this. But now we're hearing there he could. So I don't think that the American people are, are buying his, let's put it on the Republicans, after we've seen just records number, uh, millions and millions of people cross into the border under his watch. Well, I love the fact that the Border Patrol Union president is going to be with Trump tomorrow and not with President Biden. So he's just doing this to try and save himself because he's been there. This will be the second time in 40 years that he's visited our border. Well, I visited the border during the end of the Trump administration um, in San Diego, and I was with the border chief of San Diego at the time. And he it, it was clear there was uh, obviously it was right uh, during COVID and there was COVID policies that were put in place that nobody could come across or they would go right back. There was no refugee asylum. Uh, but it was interesting to me that the Boy Scouts uh, were building a campsite within a stone's throw of the border. That's how safe it was at the time. Wow. Um, and we saw just yesterday, the Los Angeles Times, uh, not a mainstream publication, uh, far to the left, reported that California had seized enough fentanyl last year to kill everyone in the world nearly twice over. Oh Why is that not more of a headline on every single publication? They're poisoning our people mm-hmm. by allowing uh, this Chinese-created uh, fentanyl to be smuggled in across the border. When I was uh, visiting the border in San Diego, it was interesting because I was told that it was so secure back then that they were moving border control assets up the coast to fight drug smuggling. Well, right. They're trying to do that, to, to tap this down as much as possible. I mean, when we think about how, how much it took to get us here. We we heard from Mayorkas and Kamala Harris and Biden for months and months and months that the border was secure. And then we hear that uh, it's not, you know, we heard that it wasn't a crisis. There's a challenge down there. Don't call it a crisis. Uh, so, I mean, it just took for everything in, in terms of admission of what the reality is, is, you know, like pulling teeth, of course. And so now it's taken, frankly, um, a high profile murder the killing of Lake and Riley, that nursing student in Georgia, to um, uh, start to potentially, as you were just reporting, uh, soften the position on the executive orders that everybody knows could have been issued long ago that may now be issued in response. 
That's right, and it conjures up for a lot of people uh, the Kate Steinle case in California. We mm-hmm. have areas in the country, uh, especially California and a border state, that have sanctuary city laws in place and have had. And there were you know, Kate Steinle uh, was murdered. Um, she he wasn't she, the the man. Uh, his last name was Zarate, who was guilty of this crime. Did was acquitted of it because he was found unfit to serve, um, and he was later his sentence. He was in. Uh, he also faced a federal gun charge because he found. He said he found uh, the gun that he used under a bench, but it was actually a sto- stolen gun from the Bureau of Land Management, and he faced a federal gun charge that he was in jail for for seven years, and then um, the anger spilled out. Uh, again in 2022 when his sentence was commuted and he was, the judge actually, the California judge actually told him I have sympathy for you, I'm going to lecture you because you didn't get your schizophrenia mental health treatment and I thought you should in California jail but uh, I'm going to release you now and please don't come back to our country. You are going to get deported finally. But all he said was, please don't come back. He had he had been coming back. He had crossed the border illegally. He had been deported six times before the Steinle murder. Oh so this is the kind of thing we're facing where the laws just are against the American people and uh, not against the immigrants coming across. Now, in California, Governor Newsom, um, I think this is in January, free health care for all illegals. And how can he afford that when they have a budget deficit of $73 billion? It's something that is fueling um, this recall petition. It's the seventh recall attempt uh, that Republicans have launched conservative activists in the state to try to remove him from office. There was a close call because it did qualify in 2021, but he, but this is what is fueling it. He has a budget deficit of 73 billion. He turned a budget surplus of 30 billion into a deficit of 73 billion. He has said that he that he wouldn't issue a, he wouldn't allow, even though Democrats in the state they control super majorities in the legislature. Uh, they definitely wanted to provide this insurance to illegal immigrants, but he has said in the past, um, twice in 2021 and and later in 2022, that he couldn't afford it. So why can the state afford it now when they're running a $73 billion deficit? He also may, March 5th, there is also a ballot initiative, a proposition that will likely pass calling for spending $6 billion more to try to curb the homelessness problem when under Gavin Newsom's time in office, uh, the state has spent $20 billion. They've thrown $20 billion at the problem, and the problem, homelessness in California, has only gotten worse. You there? Yes. Susan, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so do you think you'll be effective this time around, though? I mean, seventh time is a charm, they do say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the problem is that some, uh, even some Republicans are saying this is sort of tilting at windmills, uh, and it, it costs the state $250 million to have the 
that's a drop in the, to have the recall. That's a drop in the bucket when you talk about seventy-three billion. But the problem is that you know, it, it really has no chance. Last time he beat the odds, he allocated his forty-point uh, margin uh, in, in beating the recall. And so it actually could embolden him because it gives him a chance to raise money uh, like he did last time. He raised $78 million through the recall efforts, $8 million, and he, used, he had so, such a surplus that now he's using some of that money to fuel his uh, presidential ambitions and his attacks against red states and his travel there. Oh, my God. Uh- Sorry for I had a little bit of a technical issue, but um, I, I just speaking of Gavin Newsom and we've had some like ridiculous histrionics in Chicago about, oh, you know, why don't you think about running for president, Governor Pritzker? Oh, no, please. You no, know, not oh, me. No, oh, gosh, no. Um, but so but what what is the real uh, rumbling at this point within Democrat ranks about Biden and. Um, you know, the the uncommitted vote in Michigan notwithstanding. I mean, to me, it still seems, and from what I hear, that absent a health event, I mean, there's no reason that he's going to relinquish the reins, and there's no reason to believe that anybody is going to, to you know, lo- launch some sort of floor challenge at the convention. Is that your view as well? Well, I, when the fact of the matter is that when you're 82 years old, um Unfortunately, it, that's the reality, that something health-related could happen to prevent you from from being able to lead the, <laughs> the country. So, yes, I do think you're right. And absent of that, he seems to be digging his heels in, even though on Seth Meyers' late-night show the other day, he was trying to show how uh, Donald Trump was the one with the mental yeah. Uh, yeah. The, sorry, the memory problems. And he, yeah, he couldn't complete his thought process. Uh, so, but you know that Gavin Newsom is waiting in the wings. He has this war chest. He launched an ad uh, just this week uh, attacking the uh, IVF decisions and picturing uh, women. Uh, he's raising the abortion issue again in these ads uh, and saying that basically California is a sanctuary state for abortion as well. And that's not addressing the problems at hand. There was a perfect political cartoon uh, that had a picture of California as a truck going off the cliff. And Gavin Newsom is there with a uh, hitchhiking with a sign to the White House. Uh, (laughs) He wants to leave the problems of the state. And he is definitely have his eye on the prize. And People have told him since he was the youngest mayor of San Francisco that he should be president. Uh, the Pricksters, um, along with the Gettys, have fueled his rise. Uh, they're a section of the Pricksters, as you know, in, in San Francisco. And they have surrounded him with yes people and told him that this is his destiny. So you can bet that if there is a faltering uh, of Joe Biden, that he will be is definitely in the mix, and he is running in 2028. Well, President Biden's getting a checkup today, a physical exam at Walter Reed Hospital this morning, so we'll see what the doctor says. I understand, uh, I mean, they're, that he and Jill are having the best sex of their lives. Oh, yeah, that's so right. That's the, everybody uh, wants to hear about an 80-year-old uh, sex life. Susan, <laughs> Susan Crabtree, RealClearPolitics.com's national political correspondent. Susan, thank you. Appreciate it. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app.
Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.